Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, guys? In this episode, I speak with John Platt. No relation, but he's a renowned environmental journalist covering endangered species, climate, and pollution-related issues. So, there was a bit of an issue with the audio at like minute 29, um, and then one before that at like minute 23. But luckily, John was recording the entire time on his end, so there's a bit, you know, of a transition period between my recording to his to mine again to his. Um, It's weird. You'll probably hear it a little bit, but... You know, the actual content of the interview is incredible. I really enjoyed speaking with John. He's such an incredible source of information. He's been doing this for so long. But also, he's really positive, which I think is very important um, in talking about things he normally writes about. Um, You know, species going endangered or extinct and environmental issues that honestly have seemed to get, get worse as time goes on, which is something we talked about. We also talk about why environmental journalism is so important. We talk about the importance of emotion and depth in storytelling. Um, We talk about staying positive in the era of Trump. And we talk about, like, what I thought was really cool was, like, de-extinction and genetic engineering and how we could utilize that to probably either slow or completely stop species from going extinct. So I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did recording it. It's an incredible episode, uh, and please, if you have a second, rate us, review us, subscribe, all of that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. All right. Well, thanks. Enjoy. All right. So in this episode of this podcast, I speak with John Platt. He's an environmental journalist covering endangered species and climate change. He's the editor of The Revelator and has run Extinction Countdown, a column that has covered endangered species for over 15 years. John, it's a true pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, real glad to be here today. Thanks very much. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we've had, uh, you know, we've had a little bit of back and forth, um, but I'm definitely curious about your background. Like, what got you started in writing conservation stories? Like, I know that you've been a writer for a long time. You've covered a wide range of topics, but what got you to become pretty much the voice on endangered species and species <laughs> converse, conservation? Well, you know, I've always been interested in conservation-related issues. Um, I look back, and I, one of the earliest things I remember striking me was uh, was mountain gorillas being in trouble. But it, it's kind of like a thousand things have added up to to this uh, life for me over the years. Um, just uh, believe it or not, comic books, Superman, the last man of his last member of his species. Um, <laughs> Learn going to going to school in Washington D.C. and attending one of the early uh, Earth Days in 1990. Uh, it just all added up. Meeting people, l- reading about things, and I was doing other work. I was writing uh, science-related material, both uh, kind of a combination of journalism and marketing for a big engineering organization. And I started blogging about endangered species because I saw a need. I didn't think other people were talking about it enough. Mm. And it just blossomed until it really became the driving focus of my career and my life. 
Wow, that's pretty cool. What did that arc look like? Like, how long did that take from, you know, the beginning to where you are now? Uh, well, it's been 15 years. Um, and I was probably um, within, um, well, let's see, I was full, I was full employed full-time um, for about the first three or four years of that, then freelance doing a, a combination of things. And probably for about the last seven or eight years, it's been almost exclusively environmental topics. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're very um, you know renowned. You're followed by a lot of Twitter isn't everything, but you're followed by a lot of people and organizations on Twitter. Like people listen to you and they hear exactly what you're saying. You know, and you're very timely about everything. Um, and so I try. Written, yeah. So you've written about a lot of species, and one of the big things is you know, let's just be honest. They're dying at a faster rate now. Um, you said like yeah. a thousand times faster because of human impact on the environment. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but what are what are the ones you keep finding? happening over and over what are the reasons that these these species are going extinct at a faster rate than they have in the past well you kind of just nailed it when you said human impact impact on the environment that's pretty much it i mean and that that takes all kinds of different uh shapes and forms you've got habitat habitat destruction and fragmentation you've got climate change pollution pesticides roads energy development i mean you name it we're we're having an, an oversized impact for uh any species living on this planet and that's costing a lot of things a lot of uh either you know it's either costing individual animals or plants their lives or entire populations or entire species and that's just unsustainable yeah yeah i've had the opportunity to speak with a lot of different um people who you know the katba langer comes to mind niaga leonard he was mm-hmm. with them and, and there's around 50 of them around. I mean, I'm sure you know, I actually, I know you've written an article on them. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And it's just, I mean, that's exactly, that's pretty much every single issue. Yeah. And when you get to a, a, a situation like that, when there's only 50 left, every individual matters, every bit of hope that you can throw at them matters, everything you, every tree you can save, every bit of pollution you can't put into the environment, it makes a difference. And, you know, thankfully for species like that, they're dedicated conservationists that have devoted their entire lives to learning about and protecting these species. And these are the people whose stories I try to listen to, whose experience I try to listen to, and convey to my readers so they either understand what's going on or see if there's something they can do on their own. I mean, oftentimes, you know, there's there's not much your average reader in Connecticut can do to help the cop by longer. Um, but, um, maybe in the aggregate they can, you know, yeah. learning to use less, uh, less resources or, or petitioning their, their, uh, elected officials to do some good or just, uh, d- donating to environmental organizations or helping out along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I find that that's like the, just even storytelling alone helps so much. You know, you can get statistics. It really that out of it. Yeah. Yeah, just just really telling the story of the people who live there and also the the animals and the species themselves, um, if you do it right, can impact someone in a pretty powerful way. So that's how I like to look at it. But you're right. I mean, it it definitely can be, um, you know, it can be a little bit frustrating. And speaking of that, like you've written one of the more interesting things I think you've written about is like how well-intentioned efforts for conservation, people who are very well-intentioned actually can have the reverse effect. So like when people, you know, I think it was like 2008, when they, when they were manufacturing fake rhino horns, or it's either that or when they start, when they introduced or tried to, um, you know, use the stockpile and sell off the stockpile of rhino horns that they had. 
Uh, yeah, 2008. I believe that was the the stockpile, stockpile of right. of um, of uh, elephant ivory, actually. But they're related, you know. Oftentimes, you'll get someone who doesn't have expertise in a field who say, "Hey, you know, I'm an economist, and in my industry, this is how things work. That's how. We, that's in a lot of ways what we got with the rhino horns. You know, if we flood the market, it'll all prices will go down. There'll be no reason to uh, to poach anything. But it ignores the, the actual reality in the in on the ground where uh, people who are buying rhino horn value it because it's from a wild animal it's more potent it's more powerful and um because it is rare that's where the value comes from now um, other well-intentioned efforts you have to look back at history um where we learned so much by the, from the mistakes we've made. And Australia is a great case of this, where they introduced invasive cane toads and plenty of other species trying to control other invasive species, and it just spiraled out of control. So you have to look back and learn from things like that. You know, people, people, and and you know, maybe you don't have to be too critical. I, I think I just was fairly critical right there, but um, <laughs> it's a lot. But you know, people are allowed to make mistakes, and yeah, unfortunately, we have to we have to make our best decisions with science and the available information. Because in a lot of cases, when we don't make the right decisions, it's going to cost a, an animal or a species its life. Yeah, it just seems like there's so much, and rightfully so, probably for this reason, there's so much research behind every decision that gets made. Um, and I agree. Can often be frustrated and think, well, you know, it's moving too slow. Well, it's probably because of reasons like that, because they don't want to yeah. make one false move and, and lose an entire species. Right. And, and you know, sometimes these grand gestures that seem really big and get a lot of press maybe aren't that great. You look at the, uh, the ocean plastic collection machine. I, I forget exactly what it's right. called, but, you know, everyone talks about it. It's like, oh, that's great. But it's swooping up all kinds of microscopic life and killing it in the process. And that's going to potentially be a problem. Uh, um, yeah. Just uh, th this past week, they were talking about Madagascar's plan to, to uh, plant millions of trees, which is great. Madagascar's terribly deforested, but a big chunk of what they're planning on planting is non-native or uh, fruit bearing trees, which could potentially be invasive. So, hmm. A lemur, one of you know, hundreds of lemur species, rely on uh, a non-native species for for its habitat when its regular habitat's been chopped down. Right. That's a very big question that we have to ask. Wow. Yeah. Good point. I mean, there's. Yeah, I thought you were going to say the ocean cleanup machine was ineffective, but just knowing, I mean, that makes yeah. sense. It's taking, it's going to take microbiology with it. Yeah. And even some bigger stuff. So you have to be, and and that that particular instance. I mean, the scientists have been voicing concerns for a while, and they've just kind of arrogantly brushed it off. And you need to be a little bit more careful about that, and uh, and not just assume that what you're doing is the right and only best thing to do. And listen to people who are critics. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned when we first started talking, you mentioned uh, you know the mountain gorillas. So we just, my wife and I just got back from Uganda in November. And we went to go see the mountain gorillas. Uh, and we went there for that reason. We were so excited. And it was really, it was exactly what I expected. It was really impressive to, um, well, not exactly what I expected. It was, it was even better. It was really impressive to see an entire country gathering around, an entire area. They're only around in three countries. Uh, gathering around these mountain gorillas. Right. Realizing how impressive they are and how special they are. Um, are there any other efforts that you can see? I mean, 
these are the only great apes that are on the rise, and it's because of that concerted effort. And the whole time I was thinking, man, how do we do this for the catbot langer? How do people do this for orangutans? How does this happen for sharks? How do we do that for other species? And, you know, I figured you'd be the best one to ask about that. <laughs> well, that is the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, now not every species can serve as that poster child like the mountain gorilla not every child not every species can elicit this great emotional reaction with uh, among visitors and people who live amongst it and even the mountain gorilla you know um they they have a history of raiding crops which makes people who live near them kind of angry right absolutely. um so you have to be able to balance that out so we've got some some really great um experience in various parts of Africa where they've turned ecotourism into an operation. You have to be careful. No one, you know, you don't want to get too close to a several thousand pound elephant. Um, I, I also look at Nepal, which is doing a great job recognizing its tigers and its, uh, its rhinos. They've done a fantastic job reducing poaching. But at the same time, they're also ignoring some calls to make sure that enough habitat is set aside. And that's creating problems uh, on the flip side because it, their, their tiger population is increasing, same as India, but there's not enough room for them. Wow. And that's going to create conflict with human beings. So there's always this flip side. And you know, really, you know, just about every country you can point at and saying they're doing something right and something wrong. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I always – you know, believe it or not, I always look at the U.S. The United States is a great example of doing things right. We've got the Endangered Species Act. We've got the Clean Air Act, yeah. water. You know, the bald eagles become such a conservation icon and success. You know, and, and then, of course, now we've got the current administration in office. And, yeah, too bad they're whittling away at all those protections and and, uh, gonna co and causing a lot of problems in the long run. So, uh but yeah, there there are a lot of good things going on in the world. It's it's tough as a journalist. You almost you almost have to go with the old maxim: if it bleeds, it leads, um, and tell the bad things. But I always try to balance it out with stories of things that are going well uh, to give people the, that shape of the big picture, to give them hope, uh, and to let them see the stories that are that are making a difference. I, yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you said that because. I could see why people would want to give up if they just hear negative news all the time. And I think that's yeah. a really corrosive attitude and it's very difficult to not talk about that so much, but we need to highlight the positives with that storytelling. I think that's incredibly yeah. important. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I understand the pain of telling these, these tough stories and listening to them. One of the stories I did at the beginning of the year was listing all the species that were declared extinct in 2019 so that appeared at the revelator the revelator.org and um man it's one of the most read articles we've ever published and i'm just so touched that so many people have been interested enough to read it but at the same time the comments i mean i've practically had to talk people off the ledge uh they're just it's it's depressing news and um you do the best you can so yeah, but uh, then you tell a good story. We we just had a story. Uh, it wasn't endangered species related, but a, a town in Utah had a great success against a fracking operation, a mm. really really rare success, and people went crazy for that story. That's been read hundreds of thousands of times. Um, you need these success stories to keep you going, and every every one you can tell, every one you can share, fuels the energy to keep us going. Yeah, one hundred percent. 
And I do want to talk about that because there are some of your articles and just in this topic in general that can be very depressing. One of them was like a 2015 about like tiger bone wine. Really, when I oh, read yeah. it, really depressed me at the time. Does it ever, like, do you have to balance like a really depressing article with a more uplifting one? Like, how do you see that? How do you see the next day? How do you see through to tomorrow when you're writing? Like yeah. This? Oh, it can be tough. It can be so tough. Um, I've been working on an article the past couple of days. Um, I don't, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it'll okay. probably be out by the time this this uh, podcast airs. Uh, but yeah, it took me, it should have taken me an hour to write. It took me two days. It was just kind of bleak. Um, but <laughs> but you do have to balance it out. I mean, for me, I, I've decided I have a couple of um, of um, adaptation tools, a couple of responses. I go for long walks. I take my my two older dogs for walks. Uh, I'll read uh, uh, escapist literature. I'll yeah. I'll just have fun watching TV. I'll listen to music and balance things out. Um, and then I, I do go looking for those success stories to tell stories that are more positive because as a journalist, I feel the same thing as my readers. I have to create, I have to go back and forth. I have to, I can't be Pollyannish. I can't invent a success story where there isn't one. I can't go looking for one just to t for the reason to tell one, but I look for balance. And I think this is something that kind of developed naturally through my writing about endangered species because I could have just, I could easily just write about rhinos 24 seven. Right. Or other giant, you know, charismatic megafauna. I could, I'd be happy to write. I'd be happy to write a gorilla article every week, but I try to. I try to mix it up. I'll do it. You know, a, a gorilla, then a, a snail, then a plant, then a shark. Um, there's so many different types of things we can write about, and I'm one of the few people who who does that mix. And I realized through doing that that not only can you tell stories about different types of species, about different places in the world about different causes. A, this species is in trouble because of poaching. This one is in trouble because of climate change. But then you can search out for the different emotional contexts of the stories as well. The pain, the joy, the the, the mystery. And that's uh, one of the things that keeps me as a writer going and I think that's one of the things that keeps readers coming back for more. Yeah, I'm sure that that variation of emotion and of location and everything. By the way, you said charismatic megafauna, which has got to be the best term. It sounds like an indie <laughs> band name. Uh, <laughs> if it's not, it should be. Yeah, it is now at this point. Um, but yeah, I do, you know, there are success stories and some of them are in America. And, and that's, I think that is an important thing to think about because even though it does feel bleak right now, but. I mean, let's be honest, we are pretty good at conservation. Just look at fishing laws. Like our, yeah. our fishing standards are higher than international fishing standards by a long shot. It, it makes it difficult on our fishermen. Um, but mm -hmm. we've talked about the administration, so we might as well chat about them. Like how has that either A, made your job more difficult with just what am I going to report on? Or how, what are the biggest changes you've seen in the past you know, three mm -hmm. and a half years, I guess? Yeah. Well, let's see. Okay. So let's, let's do, do, talk about this for the next three or four hours. Yep, exactly. um, <laughs> honestly, I mean, one of the reasons that the, the revelator exists is in a way a response to the Trump administration coming in. Um, we're sponsored by a great nonprofit called the Center for Biological Diversity, and they knew um, that there was going to be a need for really 
tough and important environmental journalism as soon as the Trump administration came into office. So they put their money where their mouth is. They they also had seen that some other environmental journalism outfits were going down the tubes. Um, so they decided as a reaction. So yeah, okay, um, I'm I may not have this magazine to run if it weren't because there were greater threats than ever. And honestly, the the administration does something anti-environmental almost every day. We had to make a decision early on. We could have said Trump, 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 and just been the twenty you know twenty four seven Trump. The Trump had been that did this, did that, did the other thing, but we decided more to go for the big picture stuff and look for trends and and yeah. through lines, and and so we um but it, 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 it it's tough i mean you look at even just um we're recording this on on january 23rd on friday the 17th which was the day before a long weekend they did so many things late in the day on friday they they uh they changed uh, the food waste laws they changed uh they they announced a plan to to uh make it easier for livestock owners to graze on public lands and uh that there would be public meetings in like four locations in the middle of nowhere and they'd make these announcements on a friday afternoon before the long weekend they did so much and it's hap- it's continuing even since then in this week alone they've they've uh, ruled out new changes to the waters of the united states rule and um and and other stuff it's just you you could be you could be covering this stuff 24/7 and the, and the, and you see that in the Washington Post and the New York Times they've got whole teams on the Trump administration you have to understand this and the, and the trouble you know i think a lot of people are in, in political burnout now right. how do you um yeah yeah you one more bad thing um but you, it it's really it's really tough. They have done so much, so many passed so many regressive changes. The the advantage, quote unquote, of what they're doing is that they're doing it so poorly. That's the one they're thing. Doing, <laughs> they're doing they're they're blatantly ignoring the law. Yeah. And so many of these things that have happened are getting overturned in the courts or will get overturned. So um, that's the the kind of big picture through line you look for a little bit there as a journalist and as a storyteller, and see if you can see if you can illuminate some some uh, some insight about that that way. But yeah, it's tough. It is tough covering the. It is tough co- being an environmental journalist in the age of Trump. But it's not just Trump in isolation. Um, this is the entire. Uh, world in one way, shape, or form. You've got these rise of regressive politicians and massively powerful oligarchs all over the world. Turkey, Poland, mm. Poland. Come on, um, Brexit. I mean, and, and I don't know. I, I try to look, I try to see the shape of things uh, when I look at the news and try to talk to experts. And I. I I think it's just a reaction to things going so well. It's this kind of last surge of, but of, of the bad guys, yeah. quote unquote. But um, they've got so much power; it, it's worrying. And you have to hope that you can. Uh, we we don't uh, go too far in one direction. Go so far that we can't turn back.
Yeah, it's really scary. The one good thing is, you know, like you mentioned, you have a, you know, a nonprofit has reached out to help uh, with Revelator. I feel like that, like people realize, oh, well, the government can't help us anymore. The government will refuse or they're actively trying to hurt us in a lot of the environmental issues. Yeah. Here's time for us to stand up. Either we're going to run for office and, and do this ourselves locally, or we're going to, you know, reach out to other sources. Uh, so I feel yeah. like hopefully there's this groundswell of people wherever they're from, uh, whether they're from America or whether international, trying to do what's best for each other and what's best for the environment. Because you're right, I, you cut off a little bit there, but I don't know if you mentioned Bolsonaro, but there's... You know, oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many, the, um, uh, the president of Madagascar, we spoke about him, yep. I forgot his name, but I mean, so there's so much regressive, uh, you know, actions taking place all over the world. It seems like there's more of a groundswell of people. Yeah. Uh, responding and, and trying to take that on themselves. Do you do you find that as well? I really do. Um, you know, people. Uh, you, you see it uh, with massive political international figures like Greta, like Greta Thunberg, who are causing so many people to stand up and t and 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 pay attention to these issues. You've got Jane Fonda, who's re recreated herself as a climate change activist. You've got. People like yourself who are standing up and telling stories, you know, going around the world, um, protests nonstop, people voting. The voter turnout was higher last time. We can only imagine what it's going to be like in the 2020 election. We've got more people. I, I'd love, like you mentioned, I'd love to see more people running for office. We've got nonstop books coming out. I really think, I really do see, I mean, but they called it the last election a blue wave. It was kind of, it wasn't a tidal wave, but it was a strong wave. It created a strong current, and I see that growth. So even though I see, like I said, the regressive forces um, circling the wagons and creating more power and taking more and more power away from the rest of us, people are standing up for what they believe is right and what they know is right. And really, they're making a difference. Um, I do not see that trend stopping, although at the same time, what's worrying is um, the attempts to stem this tide. You've got the criminal, you've got states across the U.S. Uh, passing laws or trying to pass laws to criminalize protests. You've got journalists going to jail or, yeah. or being threatened with jail or lawsuits. You've got um, uh, all kinds of lawsuits trying to get people to shut up um, so and you've got all kinds of laws and, and actions trying to take away people's voting rights so you can only hope that these two competing forces that are head-to-head -head, that it's the the masses and the people that win and uh, I've, I've really got confidence at this point I really do well that's good uh, it's good to hear because so do I this is one of those things that I feel is kind of even beyond politics. Like, I mean, Nixon created the EPA, didn't he? He did. The Endangered Species Act. Like he did. Yeah. He did a lot of stuff. He sure did. That, that uh, you know, and he was far Republican. So this is way beyond. I feel like we can only go up from here, essentially. There you Especially go. Especially if if the you know something happens in the next four years and you know Trump is not there anymore. This is kind of the baseline. This is kind of the lowest. And again, he's like rushing for the angle. He's rushing and just fumbling <laughs> and just, you know, trying his hardest. But again, a lot of these things are going to get overturned. So that has me hopeful as well. So it's nice to hear I'm not the only one. All right. 
let's 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 all tie in together and let's all realize that we're not the only ones. That yeah. we're all we all feel the same way and we all have the same momentum going forward. Absolutely. And then we'll go see charismatic megafauna. Indie rock band in Austin, Texas or something. Um so yeah, so on that note, a few years ago you wrote an an article about de extinction. So which is essentially using like synthetic biology for things like genetic engineering and cloning. While this is probably not going to bring back the woolly mammoth, do you think this is an opportunity to protect currently threatened species? Is there a way that people can use this to help them? I really do. And and it's interesting you bring up the woolly mammoth because that's one of the applications they say it's most likely to do. And there's all kinds of uh, people trying to say, we'll create a, a kind of pseudo- woolly mammoth. We'll use some woolly mammoth genes and some elephant genes and create something that's close enough. Um, but who teaches a reborn, recreated woolly mammoth to be a woolly mammoth? There's no, no there's no mama and <laughs> yeah. papa. There's no, there's no knowledge to be passed right. down. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to recreate the passenger pigeon, which used to exist by the millions in the yep. skies. Well, what happened? Okay, great. You recreate one passenger pigeon. How does one passenger pigeon make a difference versus the millions that used to be there? Uh, and is there a role for it in the ecosystem now that it's been gone for so many decades? But at the same time, I, I do see some hope in some of these potentials, uh, some of these technologies. Um, I love, you know, uh, it always comes back to rhinos for me for some reason. But, you know, the, the northern white rhino, there's only two females left. They're both um, uh, non-reproductive. The last male died. But they've got his genetic material, and they've got their eggs. And they did, they have been managing to create temporarily viable embryos. They haven't brought anything to term yet. But in theory, you could use a southern white rhino as a surrogate and bring uh, one of these species back to life. This is a big learning curve. The re rhino reproduction is really complex. Um, but this is some of the same technology. And then you've got things like CRISPR, which is genetic engineering. You know, can you, can you go to Hawaii where you've got these invasive mosquitoes that are carrying diseases up the mountains to killing off all the native birds? Can you engineer the mosquitoes to so they suddenly stop breeding? Um, and does, you know, of course, that creates all kinds of ethical questions. And, you know, again, going back to the best intended, uh, best intentions and unintended consequences, does, do you let a genie out of the bottle and create more problems? But there is potential for this technology. Um, you just have to be careful how you, how you use it and make sure you've addressed all the potential questions first. So. Another thing that we were that I read about in one of your articles is there's a lot of people investing in the possibility of extinction for a species. So whether they're just hosting the organic material of a you know a tiger or of a rare tree, they're hoping that it will go extinct so that they can then sell it. How frustrating is that gotta be when someone's literally you know betting against you, hoping that you you know, hoping that this species will fail. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. It's crazy. You know, people are buying rare products to, to stick on a shelf or they're, or even live tortoises or live orchids in the hope of making a killing in the future. And they're literally killing things to make a killing. I, I don't know if that's all that different from oil executives or anything like that, but it's pretty crazy. Yeah. 
Well, so we've talked about how things can be depressing, but what is, what's something promising? We both like to end on a really positive note. What's something that we can hope for in 2020 uh, with species conservation, with climate change, with anything? Yeah. Well, we talked about this blue wave, and it's just such mm-hmm. a positive trend. I really think that people are making a difference. You've got great operations like Project Drawdown, which is scientifically quantifying all of the potential solutions for climate change, figuring out which ones can make the best difference the fastest. Um, in terms of conservation, you've got scientists doing great things on the wherever you look. Um, so there, there's just all kinds of positive stuff going on, and I, I just, uh, I almost, I'm almost afraid to call out too many because I just think that there's going to be so, uh, so many going on. Nice. Well, that's perfect. That's very comforting to hear. John, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I know, uh, you know, you're super busy. There's a lot to write about now, so I really appreciate you taking the time out. Uh, you know, keep fighting the good fight. I think it's a really important thing that you're doing, and both sharing the positive stories as well as the realistic negative ones are are both very important. So thank you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You take care. You too. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews until next time. Take care.